The first reading is from Luke 10, verse 29 to 37. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The second reading is from Leviticus 23, verse 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Let, leave them for the poor and the alien. I am your Lord, I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I think you've heard this a few times now, but Knox Church is a community that is following Jesus, loving the city, and serving the world. I think we should say that together. We are a church that is following Jesus, loving the city, and serving the world. And we believe that if that's our vision, if that's really what we're about as a church community, we need to talk about it a lot, actually. And sometimes we need to be reminded of what it means to be that kind of community. And so over the last two weeks, Phil reminded us about those first two phrases of the vision statement, following Jesus and loving the city. He reminded us that following Jesus means obeying what Jesus says, and that obedience to Jesus isn't constraining, but that it's actually liberating, that we are most free to be ourselves as God made us, to be human as God fashioned us when we are obedient to Jesus. Then last week, we remembered together that loving the city means celebrating with the city and mourning with the city and inviting everyone who we meet to experience and know, to taste and to see the feast that is at the center of God's kingdom. That there's a party that this city has been invited to and loving them means making sure that they've received their invitations. This week, we'll turn our attention together to that third phrase in our vision as a community serving the world, to unpack what that means for us and why this part of our vision seems so wide in its scope. To unpack what that means, we'll be delving into this parable of the Good Samaritan. Of course, I suspect you know this story, right? You've heard that one before, it's familiar to you. I think this is probably the most successful and most prolific of all of Jesus' parables. Good Samaritan resonates as a common phrase in the English language, and sometimes that adjective qualifier of good can just be dropped and we'll just say someone was a Samaritan. Samaritans have become synonymous in our culture with goodness. 
And I'm sure for those of you who've been around the church for a little while, you already know that this was not always the case. That Good Samaritan would have actually been something of an oxymoron in Jesus' day. Jumbo shrimp, honest thief, Good Samaritan. There was no conception that Samaritans could be good. And so it's difficult for many of us to imagine in peaceable Canada the kind of deep hatred and tension that existed between these two groups of Jews and Samaritans, the deep ethno-religious enemies that they were. These were two groups of people who believed they could not be any more dissimilar, who believed that they would come out on top no matter what. On one occasion, the Jewish king, John Hyrcanus, invaded Samaria and destroyed their mountaintop temple. And then this was met in response with a group of Samaritans going to Jerusalem and desecrating the temple by scattering human bones around it. This is the kind of relationship that they had with each other. And just to drive the point home, in John 8, we even read about a group of Israelites who ask Jesus this question. They say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Demonic Samaritan. That's a phrase that was probably more familiar to these people, but certainly not a good Samaritan. But that story of Jesus being accused of being a Samaritan, when I read it again this past week, it struck me because it reminded me of a news story that appeared in many of our news feeds and on the front page of many of our, our papers in the last week. What happens in that story is that Jesus responds to that question, are you not a Samaritan and do you not have a demon? Only by saying that he does not have a demon, which reminded me, of course, of the interaction between Jagmeet Singh and an anti-Muslim protester, consistently accusing this Sikh man of being a Muslim and desiring to oppose Sharia law. And just as in this story, Jesus would not say that he was not a Samaritan, he would not deny that and use that word as the insult that they meant it for, Jagmeet Singh, likewise, did not deny being a Muslim in the face of such vitriol and hatred. And this made me wonder if it's really that difficult for us to imagine Samaritans in our context to understand this story as Canadians if we're really that different at all, if it's really that hard for us to imagine the kind of enemies that these people were. As we hear the word Samaritan in this story, we may only need to substitute in certain other words, like outlaw and criminal, like heretic and unbeliever, like communist or neo-Nazi, like Muslim whoever it is that we may view as our enemy, who we believe is out to destroy our lives, who we say is no child of God, and who is exempt from every good thing that we experience in our lives. We need only think of those people who we have been taught to think of as our enemies in the place of the Samaritan, to experience for ourselves the kind of shock and surprise that the audience of the day would have felt as they heard Jesus tell this story. Jesus says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest is going down that road. And here the story has its first resolution. 
By good fortune, a priest was going down the road. What good luck! Of course, the priest who is righteous and knows the law and understands that he must love his neighbors will help this man, supposedly a fellow Jew. But Jesus continues, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Well, that's disappointing, no doubt. But to the minds of contemporary listeners, you have to understand that they've already solved this puzzle because it's a common trope in Jesus' day that if it's not the first thing, it's the third thing. So it wasn't the priest, so it's going to be the third thing. So of course it's not the Levite. Nobody expected it to be a Levite, really. And if it's not a priest and it's not a Levite, then the logic goes that it must be a common Israelite. That's the third thing. We figured it out. We don't need Jesus to keep going. It's just you and me as the common listener. It's a good neighbor who sees their fellow Israelite and helps them. It's obvious. But once again, the clever minds of the listeners and the clever minds of you and me are foiled as Jesus reveals who this third person really is. It's that most hated enemy. The hated enemy who sees a half-dead man on the side of the road and who we expect will just walk by for sure, who might make sure that he's dead, in fact. And instead, this man is moved with pity This hated enemy feels compassion deep within themselves and goes to the half-dead man. The enemy bandages his wounds. The enemy pours oil and wine on him, rejuvenating him, and puts him on his own donkey and brings him to an inn. And there are a couple of things which this good Samaritan, this loving enemy, teaches us about serving the world. The first is that he does not see the tribe of the person who he helps. Jesus seems careful in this parable not to reveal very much at all about the victim. All we know is they're traveling on this road, and the victim is a man. And we and the original audience necessarily assume that this man is Jewish, which is why we expect the priest or the Levite to help. Of course, you would help your own kind. But remember that the robbers stripped this man before they beat him and left him for dead. He has nothing on him to indicate which of these two very similar-looking groups he belongs to. He is a naked, half-dead man on the side of the road. His allegiance is neutral in his vulnerability. He could be a Jew. He could be a Samaritan. We don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us. Nobody who passes by knows either. And it doesn't seem to matter. It doesn't matter because it is not the tribe which moves the Samaritan to help. Nor is it the law to love your neighbors which moves him to help. It is compassion. It is mercy. It is pity. It is the very humanity of the situation which causes the Samaritan to care for a half-dead man on the side of the road not knowing and not needing to know who he was or where he came from, instead only seeing a need and being able to meet it. Our natural inclination so often is for this to matter, for it to matter to us that the ones we help are the ones who are like us, that we can relate to on some level, 
As humans, we seem to naturally build walls and create barriers. We instinctively draw lines between us and them, and our behavior changes as a result. We can name those groups who are our enemies. You probably have some names in mind right now. We can name those groups who desire us no good, and our hearts harden toward them, and we begin to desire no good for them either. The Samaritan sees a half-dead, naked man on the side of the road, and something is stirred up within him to right a wrong. When we see injustices to those who are very much unlike us, who don't look like us perhaps, or maybe don't act like us, or for us gathered here, maybe they don't believe what we believe. Are we still able to feel those heart-wrenching feelings that cause us to help? Are we still able instead to pass by on the other side because it's not us? Because for some reason we can't see them as our neighbor. Because we are too afraid ourselves to show any pity. The second thing that we should notice about the Samaritan is that he's good not because he scoured the Jerusalem-Jericho road looking to help the needy. This wasn't his day job. He didn't set out on a mission to find everyone who needed his help. He was good because he was going about his day like I'm sure he did so often, and he was willing to be moved by compassion to be drawn close to somebody in need and inconvenienced by helping them. This behavior reminds me of the Great Commission's imperative. You know it, so often it's translated as go and make disciples. But really, it's more of a, as you go, make disciples. There is this deep assumption in the life and the ministry of Jesus and those who he calls his disciples that we are people who are going We are people who are doing things, who are busy with our lives and doing good in the world, and that as we do all the things we're busy doing, we are consistently aware of God's kingdom. It's this kind of mindfulness as we go, which we see commanded in that verse from Leviticus that was read for us. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather in the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Farmers in ancient Israel served the world. They served the world by staying exactly where they were and by doing what they had always done and farming their fields. And they left a little bit around the edges. They left a little bit so that people who were just passing through from faraway lands going to who knows where on journeys all their own would have something to eat. And it didn't make much of a difference to the farmers. That little bit around the edge would not make the difference between a successful harvest and a failed crop. But it may have been the difference between life and death for those who ate it, as it was in the story of Ruth and Naomi. This enemy in the parable, he's going somewhere already, and he stops. He's busy already, and he goes a little bit out of his way. He gets his hands dirty in order to help the one in need. But then he keeps on going. 
His plans don't seem to be entirely derailed by this little incident with the man on the side of the road. He hands him over to the innkeeper and trusts that person to the innkeeper's care. And then he's busy. He's got business to attend to. He has people to see and things to do. And he says he'll come back, but he doesn't need to do everything to be good. That's not the moral of this story. The Samaritan didn't have to abandon his entire life and commit himself solely to this purpose. But he did have to do something. He did have to be inconvenienced by the stop, stained by mud and blood. He had to risk that his lot would fall in with the victims. He had to show mercy. I wonder if we are willing to be inconvenienced as we go about our days for the good of those who we might encounter. Can we make space and time for the one in need? Are we able to imagine lives where it is not a choice for us between what we have to do and helping someone, but that perhaps there is an option where we get to do both? Jesus had been asked the question, who is my neighbor? Which was code for who do I have to love? And the acceptable answer was people who are like you. But Jesus doesn't quite answer the question. He repositions it instead. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man on the side of the road? Jesus does not indulge the list making of who is my neighbor and who is not. Instead, he suggests a question which is rather about being a neighbor. Jesus suggests that having a neighbor isn't the purpose. We all have neighbors. We know that, and we could probably know who they are. Jesus suggests that it's never been about having neighbors. Rather, it's about becoming a neighbor. The lawyer knows the answer, of course. We all know the answer. The Samaritan has been the neighbor by having mercy. So Jesus says the lawyer should go and do likewise. A South African scholar posed the staggering takeaway of the lawyer in this way. My enemy loves me. I should be like him. My enemy loves me. I should be like him. I should be willing to be touched by the suffering of others. I should be compassionate and merciful even when I'm busy. I should become a good neighbor to all who I meet. And it is a process, becoming a good neighbor. And the temptation to cross to the other side of the road is often very real when we're too focused on just getting from A to B, or, or we're too focused on ourselves, or we're busy believing that somebody else will stop. They probably have more time than we do or we're busy making all kinds of excuses as to why we might not assist. One time I was walking in downtown Windsor. I was on my way to the bank before going to church. And I'm not sure what you've heard about Windsor, but it's not very much at all like the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, okay? Very few dens of robbers along the way. And as I was walking, I had my earbuds in. And I thought that I heard somebody calling for help. 
but I looked around and I didn't see anybody. I noticed that on the other side of the street, there was a street-level elevator whose door was opening and closing. But I told myself that I probably was hearing things and I suspect I really didn't want to be inconvenienced. And I just said, okay, I'll go to the bank and then when I'm going back, I'll go on that side of the road and see if something's up. No big deal. Of course, in my time and on my terms. So I would walk by on the other side of the street to see if something was happening. And on my walk back, as I passed by the elevator, the door was still opening and closing, there was a man about my age on the floor of the elevator, just in his boxers, with dried blood on his legs and construction material all around him. And he was so grateful that somebody had stopped and people were still walking by in both directions right in front of the elevator. And as I asked him questions for the 911 operator, I discovered that he was from out of town. And he'd been out drinking the night before, as one does in Windsor. And somehow he and his friends had made it to this construction site on the third floor of the building which that elevator accessed. And somehow he must have fallen down a flight before dragging himself into the elevator and he didn't know where his clothes were or where his friends were and he didn't have his cell phone and he just needed somebody to stop. He needed somebody to inconvenience themselves for him. And I had almost walked by too. I had nearly walked by when there was absolutely no danger to my life at all. This really wasn't the Jerusalem-Jericho road. There was no reason for me to believe that this person might be my enemy either. He would have just been an inconvenience for me. And that was almost reason enough. Suffice it to say that after that experience, every time I hear this story, the priest and the Levite are much more sympathetic characters. And every time I hear this story, I understand again the challenge of loving our neighbors, of being a loving neighbor, is really much more difficult than it sometimes seems. Our vision statement of following Jesus, loving the city, and serving the world is meant for all of us who consider Knox Church our home, who identify as a part of this community. We don't actually get to pick out the parts that we're doing. We don't get to say, you know, I'm really focused on following Jesus, but I know that we have some missionaries who are really into serving the world right now. We're all doing all of it together. And the parable of the Good Samaritan reminds us that serving the world doesn't necessarily mean being a missionary overseas. If this is a parable for us about serving the world, it is undoubtedly about serving the world as we encounter it, about serving the world as it crosses our path and as our eyes see the needs of others, about serving the world as our hearts are moved to compassion, even as this enemy's heart was moved to compassion for a person that he knew nothing about. So too, we may find ourselves walking on a road, minding our own business, and meet somebody in need who we don't know very much about, who may come from far or near, who may be like us or unlike us, but importantly, who will need our help and mercy. Serving the world is in helping the ones who we meet. Last week at the ministry fair, the missions hub put up this map of the world. We have a slide. 
and they asked people to put a pin in places where they lived. I think the next slide has a better picture of that. And in just one Sunday at Knox Church, just the random people who decided to do this, we spanned six continents and scores of countries. We still need to find somebody who's lived in Antarctica. This map, though, made the lesson of this parable for our consideration of serving the world that much more real to me. The people who we encounter in this church and throughout this city have connections all around the world. They move and they live and they shape culture all around the world. People are here for only brief seasons of work and study, or they may come here alone, hoping to bring their family along after them. And the way that we serve these people, no matter where they come from or where they may be going, is a service to the world and is a practice of being a neighbor. The world is at our doorstep, Knox Church, and the world is in our city streets. And our neighbors have different stories than we have, but our call is to serve them, to show them love and mercy whenever our paths do intersect. Not all of us may be called to be missionaries overseas, but each of us is called to serve in the world by simple actions which may inconvenience us, which may get our hands dirty or make us late for our meeting, which may be a little bit more financially costly for us, but which will make a world of difference to the one who we encounter. Whatever their story and whoever their enemies are or may be, we are called to be moved by compassion for people who bear the image of our God and to care for the hungry and the helpless as we meet them on our journey as individuals and as a community of faith. We are called to be a neighbor to those who we've met and those who we've never met and those who we may never meet again and to continue on the path of our lives ever watchful for the ones on our way who are in need of our help and our mercy, and who we may serve as we go. The one who has had mercy as he walked on a dangerous road, going about his own business, was the neighbor. This man served the world. Go and do likewise. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, the story you told is so familiar to us that it can be difficult for it to sink in, for us to imagine ourselves as the victim or the Samaritan. And so we pray that as we go, as we prepare to leave this place and as we go about our lives every day, that you would open our eyes to see the ones who you've called us to serve that you would stir in our hearts deep compassion, not compelled by tribalism or legalism, but compelled by mercy and your love. We pray that we might become a people who are truly serving the world as we encounter it, as we meet it, that we would be a people following after you. Amen.